All right, welcome to the conversation on the TYT Network. I'm your host, Jake Uger. Uh, well, we're going to talk about a historical figure that uh, has possible ramifications for today. It certainly has ramifications in that we all follow his policies. And uh, Democrats follow it and Republicans follow it. If you're wondering who it is, well, it's John Maynard Keynes. And, uh, and Zach Carter, who's an excellent reporter at HuffPost, senior reporter over there, has written a book about him called The Price of Peace, uh, Money, Democracy, and the Life of John Maynard Keynes. And uh, Zach joins us now. Uh, Zach, thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. Great to see you again, Jake. Yep, good to see you. All right, so first question, Zach, is uh, why this book? I mean, you write about a lot of different topics, and you had a thousand things to choose from. Why Keynes? Well, I mean, that, that's a question that people asked me when I was uh, submitting this book proposal four years ago. And, uh, and you know, I think for some people it's, it's a little bit perplexing. But I ultimately think that Keynes is a philosopher of crisis. We think about him as somebody who uh, most people encounter Keynes as, as the guy who tells, tells governments to spend money in a recession, right, to, to build up big budget deficits, to lift economies out of depression. Um, but I, I really think there's a lot more going on there. He's, he's a philosopher of crisis, and this is an age of crisis. And the way that he thinks about societies on the verge of, of calamity, I think, is, uh, is really essential to the way that, uh, that we engage reality in our own time. Yeah, so uh, we are on the precipice of calamity, so we'll get back to that and his prescription for how to get out of it. And, and we'll explain why Republicans also listen to him. But before we get to any of that, uh, who is he as a person? Well, Keynes comes from a very uh, upper middle class, uh, sort of casually elite background in uh, in, in British academia. His, his father is uh, an economist at Cambridge University. Uh, he, he grows up around Cambridge and he has all these friends who are similarly elite, but not necessarily financially comfortable elites. They're people who come from enough money to get to Cambridge University, uh, enough money to think about art and leisure and ideas and, and, and aesthetics as, as things that are important in, in, in life, but, but not people who are, who are so comfortable that they can just ignore the financial realities of the real world. Uh, and so when they, when they get out of Cambridge together, they're all kind of stunned. They're like, okay, what do we do? How do we, how do we make ends meet? And they decide that they're going to make ends meet by, by writing books and partying together. Uh, and it's really quite a scene. It's called it's called the Bloomsbury set, uh, and and Bloomsbury is sort of one uh, installment in this international uh, milieu that that is is part of the the sort of leisure class we, we might say of of the turn of the century. So there there are installments of this in in Saint Petersburg in Russia. They're in Paris. They're they're in Frankfurt and and Munich and and in New York, and and the London version of this is. Is is Bloomsbury, and Keynes is really one of the luminaries in the set. His his other friends are people like Virginia Woolf, one of the most famous English writers from the 20th century, and they just sort of hang out and write things to each other. And they're not famous. They they're they're not world renowned artists or or aesthetes or anything at this point in time. Uh, but they but they think of themselves as being world-renowned artists and aesthetes at, the, at this point in time. And yet it's not until the world really comes into crisis that, that John Maynard Keynes really makes a name for himself. So he's almost 30 years old. He's more than 30 years old, frankly, uh, when uh, b before anyone thinks of or cares about his economic ideas. He's mostly just this guy who hangs out uh, in a particularly you know artistic neighborhood of London with people like Virginia Woolf uh, talking about books. 
Yeah, this leisure class sounds amazing. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but he did at least care about other human beings and, uh, and certainly care a lot about inequality. But so what's the brand of economics that um, uh, he espoused and that wound up taking off and why? Well, Keynes is a complicated guy. He, he starts off as, as this devout servant of the British, uh, the British Empire while it's going to war. So he, he really makes a name for himself during the First World War. Uh, as as the guy who manages the British Empire's finances. And it's a complicated thing for him because he's against the First World War. He thinks that this is a bad war. He thinks it's about nothing. He thinks it's about imperialism and that this is the, these things are bad for the world and he, he doesn't want to be part of it. But he's also very good at managing finances and he's always wanted to work for the British Treasury because he sees that as being very prestigious. So he's conflicted. Uh, the economics that he develops, uh, the, the the real uh, innovation he has within economics is is trying is sort of seeing the economic system as a whole as being different from the economic decisions of individuals. So he he gets to this realization as a result of being sort of an imperial manager during the war. This is not something that I think I think most leftists today would look at and say like, oh, hooray. This guy was managing war finances uh, in for the British Empire in the First World War, but he ultimately develops this uh, set of ideas into uh, it, he combines it with his his much more deeper phil philosophical commitments in, into a, a way of thinking about how to manage society as a whole, which says, look, if you want to avoid calamities like the First World War, you have to do things to take care of society that that allow people to feel like they are taken care of by the state. If, if people feel like they are subjected to these, these deep swings of, in reality, uh, these uncertainties about the future, uh, if they don't feel like they're financially protected, they're gonna do things that are bad. They're gonna support bad ideas. Uh, and so he ends up supporting you know, a, a pretty robust welfare state and, and the alleviation of inequality as, as a sort of way of protecting the world against, uh, against international conflict, which, you know, he he viewed the the first world war as sort of like the worst thing that could ever happen. He he wanted to 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 keep that from happening again. Yeah. So well, he was right on a lot of counts. It was up until that point the worst thing that had happened. Uh, it was largely over nothing and imperialism. Uh, and and uh, well, when uh, the British government went towards protecting its own citizens more from those calamities, it remained a vibrant democracy. Uh, and when the German government couldn't do that and they had an economy that was in shambles, they built a war machine and started a war that was even worse. So he was proven right on a lot of counts. Um, so, but as things stand today for people unfamiliar, what is the core of Keynesian economics? Well, I think the, the way that we understand him uh, has been sort of his legacy has been written by economists and so people think about his great innovation in economics is well you should you should spend money in a recession to help lift uh your your economy out of out of the doldrums and and look that's part of his that's part of his legacy it's it's really there but he's a much broader thinker i mean he was the guy who he was the financial architect of the national health service for great britain so you know, socializing British medicine, that was John Maynard Keynes, probably his greatest policy success of his entire life. Uh, he, he did not wake up every morning and say, hey, I hope people will someday remember me and think about uh, about deficit spending. 
he wanted to think he, he wanted to, he wanted people to think about economics not as a science of, of money and numbers but as a way of, of of taking care of societies to protect them from the kind of disasters uh, that he saw in World War One, and frankly, I think we're seeing right now in COVID-19. Uh, this this type of, of calamity, uh, aside from all of the you know technical you know disasters that uh, the Trump administration has has perpetrated, um, th- this this disaster has been bad because we have not taken care of our society in a lot of other ways that I think John Maynard Keynes would have said. Look, if you if you protect society from from so, bad things are bound to happen. Bad things happen all the time. But if you have a set of, of sort of shock absorbers for ordinary people, then then the things don't have to get that bad once <laughs> once the calamity arrives. Right. So, uh, well, look, here's a guy who is in favor of uh, government spending, uh, nationalized medicine, and was deeply concerned about inequality and needless wars. So uh, what on God's earth are we talking about when we say Republican presidents also are uh, believers in reality of Keynesian economics? Yeah, it's, uh, it's 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 a tricky thing because he he lived for so long and he wrote so many things for for so much of of his life uh, that there there are people who can pick and choose different things from his life and legacy and say this is this is the thing that mattered. Um, but look, he was an imperial manager for the British government uh, in an era of of constant violence and war. So if you want to run an empire and run up big deficits with military spending, uh, you can turn to Keynes and say, look, this guy says that running up big deficits will not bankrupt our country uh, and we can afford it. And that's what Republicans have done since, uh, you know, from Eisenhower forward, really, uh, the Korean War uh, with Vietnam under uh, under Johnson and uh, not, Johnson's obviously not a Republican, but Richard Nixon's escalation of the Vietnam War. Um, clearly under Ronald Reagan and George W. Bush and Donald Trump, we've, we've been spending an enormous amount of money on uh, on wars and and cutting taxes for the rich uh, and under Keynesian economics that that doesn't necessarily lead to economic ruin. It doesn't it doesn't make your your economy stop functioning. Uh, and so they have a point. But I, I think someone like John Maynard Keynes, I think certainly John Maynard Keynes himself would say that that's that's still appalling. Like, why would why would you do that? Why would you organize society in such a way? He he wanted people to be able to enjoy the the beautiful things that his friends in Bloomsbury enjoyed art, literature, uh, love. He he had he had no interest in in war. He he was trying to he was trying to stop wars. Yeah, that group of friends sounds uh, awesome. Anyway, uh, okay. And by the way, uh, it, to to Zach's point, um, no matter what they say about Keynesian economics, when Republican presidents come in, they all massively increase the deficit, and they do it because they know that it helps the economy, and they want a healthier economy when they're in office. That's why they yell at Democrats to lower the deficits once they get in office, because they know that it might hurt the economy. Um, and then they make it easier for Republicans to win re-election. Uh, but anyway, find out all about that and more uh, in the book, The Price of Peace. Zach Carter, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. Great to see you, Chang. All right. Great to see you. All right, we're back on a conversation. Uh, now, an old friend's with us, back with us, uh, progressive activist, uh, original co-founder of Democracy Spring, uh, Kai Newkirk. Uh, Kai, uh, great to have you back on, brother. Great to be with you, Jank, as always. Appreciate it. Yeah. 
whenever we check in with you, you're uh, leading some sort of protest, uh, <laughs> which I love. Uh, in fact, I participated in in a couple. Um, but um, in, in this case, you did one recently uh, regarding uh, coronavirus. Uh, but, you know, a lot of the right-wing protests are, are getting attention in the news because they're carrying weaponry and basically threatening people's lives, etc. cetera. Uh, but so what did a left-wing protest in the midst of coronavirus look like? Well, um, you know, this was an experiment, I would say, you know, and, and as we were approaching, you know, starting to hear about what Pelosi was working on in the House in terms of the next relief bill, you know, I, I felt like there needed to be some effort to intervene in that process and get to a better result than the prior bills. And my sense about that was, one, there needed to be more of a push to progressives in, in the House to really draw the line and fight and use their leverage to uh, get to a better bill and get what we really need in there. And two, that if we were going to make that happen, we needed grassroots progressives, we needed the progressive movement to... Uh, challenge Democrats and progressives to to do so in a more forceful way, and I felt like that was wasn't going to be possible unless we went beyond a lot of the digital protests that happened and been that had been happening during the pandemic. And it's obviously a really difficult question: How do you responsibly, safely protest publicly during a pandemic? Maybe you maybe you can't. That's that's an understandable position. And I had participated in one car. Uh, based protest at a uh, immigrant detention center um, here in Arizona, fighting to to get folks released from detention to be safe, and help to amplify several of those around the country. And I think it's a good tool. Um, but I felt like we needed to try and see if we could do something safely that went beyond that and brought people out physically in person in public, and also seeing the the really reckless just you know, senseless uh, reopen protests, which I understand some of the needs those are speaking to, but to do so in a way where people are coming together, not physically distancing, not wearing masks, you know, threatening people, you know, even disregarding the risk of the virus, obviously um, is very dangerous. And, and I felt like that was kind of monopolizing the space of protest and really moving our politics in the wrong direction. So felt like there needed to be a response. And so, you know, reached out and brought just independent, you know, individual organizers uh, together in different parts of the country who agreed. There weren't, I reached out to some organizations, there wasn't really much of a willingness or readiness to take this kind of step. Um, but we felt like we needed to try it and do it. And so the the safety protocol that we came up with, and after, you know, this was after a lot of conversation, really grappling with the question of whether it's the right thing to do to try to do any kind of public protest right now. And where we came down was mm -hmm. a feeling that the, the risk to people is already there. Frontline workers working without protection, there's nothing that's going to help them in the status quo right now, right? And there's so many people suffering uh, that the question of whether this bill is going to really meet the need or not is so important that it was worth taking some very calculated, managed risk to try to get to a better result. And so the plan that we came up with to try to do that was inspired by protests in Israel and Portugal and other places around the world that really did rigorous physical distancing. And so we said, we're gonna create a grid, at least nine feet of space in between everybody that's pre-marked in the area where we're gonna be protesting, require that everyone have a mask or cloth face covering, um, require that everyone go through a Zoom video call briefing on the protocol beforehand, 
maintain physical distancing while coming and going, no exchange of materials, um, ask people who might be high risk not to participate. Um, and, and we didn't organize it publicly. We didn't put out the location so just anybody could show up, which obviously makes it much more difficult to get more people there. But we wanted to have a standard for safety that we felt like would be unimpeachable. Um, and so that's what we came up with. And, uh, the, the actions were small and they happened in few places, but I think we were successful in showing that we could do so and do it responsibly, do it safely. Well, some progressives did wind up uh, raising a challenge to that bill. Uh, so let's go to the substance of it. What was wrong with the bill in your estimation, Guy? Yeah, well, we saw as it was uh, the, there were kind of leaks of what was likely to be in the released bill, the draft bill. And then when it came out, we saw um, that there were a lot, there was a lot of really good stuff in it, which is a testament to the fact that progressives were fighting harder this time, especially in response to the last bill. So there was so much good stuff in that, and we celebrate that claim that as progressive victories. But there were things that are really uh, essential and important that were left out, like uh, Pramila Jayapal's Paycheck Guarantee Act, which is the best way to stop the mass layoffs that are happening and and do so retroactively, get a lot of people back to work. Um, like making the direct cash relief, which is essential because so many people are not able to access unemployment insurance, making that monthly and making it larger, so $2,000 a month rather than $1,200, and addressing uh, the healthcare need that still so many people who need COVID treatment can't have that covered. So we need free COVID treatment for all, which is the bare minimum you could ask for in terms of healthcare. Really, we should have uh, covering all uninsured and underinsured costs through Medicare um, opening up Medicare right now. So we felt like those were some of the bare uh, essential and popular pieces that were missing, and we were pushing progressives to draw the line. And you're right that I think it was a really important step that a bigger group of them did. We said we're trying to create a hashtag people's bailout block. That's what we called this effort to organize these protests. And in the end, we went from one person, AOC, to nine progressives who voted in that block. And I think it was a really important test of where progressives are at in the House and really using their leverage to um, enter even into conflict at times with uh, the Democratic leadership to make bills better. Um, and I think it was a big step forward. We, and there were some surprising absences you know, from that list, like Raul Grijalva, you know, a justice Democrat here in Arizona, um, who didn't vote with them. But I was, I was proud of those folks. I think it was courageous and it's something that we can build on. Obviously, it was not enough by a slim margin to stop the vote and force improvements. But still, um, I think it was an important success in building up progressive power in Congress that they took that stand. So how um, responsive do you think the progressive legislators have been to progressive groups? Is there a need to put pressure on or are they ready for the fight before anyone else is, et cetera? Really open-ended here, but what's your take on it, guy? Well, I think it's obviously, I would say, a, a big spectrum, right? You know, if you look at the Progressive Caucus, we're talking, you know, some 90 members, right, who have a real range of the values and policies they push for, how they approach governing, how they campaign, et cetera. Um, there are some leaders, you know, like a Pramila Jayapal, for example, obviously, like an AOC, um, who I think are, you know, sometimes ahead of the progressive groups. We saw that this time, that the Progressive Caucus co-chairs came out and demanded that the bill be delayed, be better, and several progressive organizations were already ready to accept it as is. Um, but I think a lot of others really need to be pushed and need to be given support to see that there's a real demand, that they can step out and not be on their own. 
um, some of them, you know, um, you know, maybe have to be pushed in, in a harder way. But I think it's a real spectrum. But to me, you know, when, when we have a problem like the fact that these bills haven't been good enough, the, the solution never starts for me with members of Congress. It starts with the movement. That's where it's got to be driven from. And that's where I feel like we haven't been coordinated enough. We haven't been united enough. We haven't been aggressive enough. And we haven't, you know, uh, worked hard enough and used all of our tools at our disposal. And I think there was progress on that with this round, which obviously is not done, but it's not enough. And so now the fight is going to be to pass something through the Senate, get it signed, period, that keeps all of the good stuff in this, like extending unemployment insurance, the Central Bill of Workers, uh, Essential Workers Bill of Rights provisions, the um, inclusion of immigrants, uh, vote, vote by mail, uh, funding for U.S. Uh, Postal Service, et cetera, and then adds in the things that need to be there that are missing and strips out some of the bad things like the corporate lobbyist bailout. That's a tall order, but it's only going to happen if progressive organizations fight, demand it of Democrats in the Senate, really push uh, Republicans and, and mobilize the public to isolate them uh, around the untenable position of not fighting for reform and to deliver more relief right now. And it's going to require, I think, doing additional protests. So, uh, Kai, uh, last thing here, a little controversial. First, actually, let me acknowledge that Jayapal has gotten uh, much stronger in her defiance of Democratic leadership, which in the beginning, I think, was minimal uh, to zero. Now is significant. So that's a wonderful step forward. And if it was partly progressive organizations and progressive media that helped to get her there, that's wonderful. But credit where credit is due to now becoming a real progressive leader. Um, but the controversial question, though, is are progressives too hard to organize? Uh, you know, I've seen it. Different groups that uh, are, don't want to work together, uh, partly out of egos. And then there's different things that float around, like cancel culture, and then all the groups cancel one another. And the next thing you know, nobody's got each other's back. Um, is that overstated, or is that a real phenomenon in the uh, progressive community? Look, there's a lot of challenges, no doubt about it. And I think any any culture, any subculture has uh, strengths to it that make it easier to come together and organize for good things, and it has weaknesses. And I think we've got a lot of good things going for us and some challenges. So I wouldn't say it's, it's necessarily harder. I, I do think less of an orientation around discipline, around strategic unity, more of a sense of, you know, following our individual paths. There's some things that maybe make it more difficult than on the right, but we've got values of caring and compassion that make it, I think, much easier. So I'm hopeful, I believe in us, we're going to continue to organize more protests, this uh, People's Bailout Block Formation. If you want to be part of it, send me a DM on Twitter, uh, Kai underscore Newkirk. We haven't created a website or anything. It's been very informal and ad hoc. Um, but nonetheless, um, real committed folks uh, doing this work, working hard for the right reasons, and we're going to push forward. And I'm hopeful. I think a key thing I'll add on your bigger point there to finish is that something I think really important for progressives, you can apply this to the primary, you can apply this to this fight, is to have an ethic of learning from our experiences and looking at a campaign, looking at a primary, looking at the results of our actions, and really being willing to look at what is it that we could have done better within the things that we control, not external stuff, not about the DNC, not about the corporate media, et cetera, but how can we really look at the results of our organizing and be willing to learn about how we can uh, do things better and continue to experiment to achieve the goals that we have, which are essential for our nation, our planet right now. 100% right. Whenever anything goes right, like the formation of Just Democrats, we try to learn from that and apply it to the rest. 
uh, whenever anything goes wrong, like for example, my election, uh, you immediately must learn lessons from it. Otherwise it's wasted. Uh, and we, we, we don't have enough resources to waste any. So we must learn the lessons, uh, even if they're hard ones, and, and apply them going forward so we get better and better. And for God's sake, let's work together. And Kai has done a great job of bringing people together uh, in the past, uh, including in Democracy Spring. So um, yes, follow him on Twitter and, and you'll see uh, the latest protests almost always. Kai Newkirk, as always, thanks for joining us on The Young Turks. We appreciate it. Thank you, Jank. Great to be with you. All right.